Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you that are new to St. Luke's or possibly visiting, we're beginning a sermon series today on Jesus in the Upper Room. That's going to be the series for Lent. Every year, besides doing a series in the fall, I also do a series during Lent. And having celebrated Ash Wednesday this past, this past Wednesday, we're now in the first Sunday of Lent. And I've decided on Jesus in the upper room for several reasons. The first is, is that usually when we think of Jesus in the upper room, we think about it, we talk about it, and we have a scripture about it on Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday, when not everybody's even in church. And so it's not always good to just do a sermon on Jesus in the upper room for Monday, Thursday only. Because John, the gospel writer, certainly considered it of significant importance when he wrote his gospel. Because if you think about it, John chapters 13 through 17 are all about Jesus in the upper room. Which works out really nice for a sermon series in Lent, by the way. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then you've got Palm Sunday and Easter, so it works out really well. It's very convenient. But John wrote 21 chapters in his gospel. Five of those chapters are dedicated to the upper room. Five out of 21, nearly 25% of his gospel. He walked with Jesus for three years. And he spends a quarter of his gospel on a few hours of that time. Why? Because it was such a significant moment in his life. Because Jesus' life and what was happening to him and what would happen to him was so poignant and important at this moment. And you know how, if you've been around anyone that you love dearly who has died, you remember that last time with them. It's burned into your memory, it's vivid. For those of you that weren't here last week, Rob Dewey was a guest preacher here. And Rob shared about his mother dying in the final hours with his mom dying in the context of his sermon. That's burned into his mind. I remember the last time I spent with my dad before he died. And that's burned into my mind. And all of us have that experience that have ever been around someone we dearly love who has died. In chapter 12, towards the end of chapter 12, in John's Gospel, Jesus tells the apostles, I'm going to die. So in a sense, John is prepared for this. He has seen Jesus' ministry building. And now, both the Jews and the Romans are getting agitated because of all that's going on. And Jesus talks about having this Passover with them, in effect, before he dies. And so when they come to this time in the upper room, John's focused. 
But it's also a very intimate time, a time of wonderful teaching and fellowship with Jesus and his apostles. So it's stuck in his mind, so much so that he weaves these five chapters in to talk about this time in the upper room. And it contains wonderful teaching as well as an intimate moment. It would be the first time that John would refer to himself as the beloved apostle, the beloved disciple. And he does that five times between now and the end of his gospel, where he will refer to himself as beloved. He knew at that point, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus loved him. That he was cherished by Jesus. That he was held dear to him. And if you think about John and his walk with Jesus even before this time, there were some significant times that Jesus only invited Peter, James, and John to be with him for special moments. One was on the transfiguration that we just read in the gospel last week. That Peter, James, and John were there to see Jesus transfigured. And then the raising of Jairus' daughter. That Peter and James and John saw that moment where Jesus raised this little girl from the dead. And then Jesus would invite Peter, James, and John to pray with him in the garden this very night. So there was this special intimacy and John knew it. And so this time is very, very significant to John so he really goes in-depth about the time, what Jesus did, what Jesus talked about. Interestingly enough, he doesn't spend much time talking about the institution of the Last Supper, which the other three Gospels talk about. Because in John's mind, that's already been established. That's part of the church. He wrote this probably around 85 or 90 A.D., towards the end of his own life. And that was already a regular part of the church. It was one of the two great command, uh, commandments and, and sacraments practiced by the church. Go and make disciples by baptizing and do this in remembrance of me, the bread and the wine, the Last Supper. So that was already part of the church. John felt other things needed to be shared. So toward the end of his own earthly life, after having walked with Jesus for three years in the flesh and nearly 60 years by the Holy Spirit, comes to this time and says, there's more of this story that needs to be told. And so he sits down and he writes his gospel. And the way he writes it is also wonderful. It makes you think about what did John think about Jesus in particular? Now coming to the end of his own life. And there's two things that when someone dies, we often think about their lives. Number one, we think of themes, something that tagged them, a character trait. Something like they were really kind, or they had a great sense of humor, or they always smiled and they made people smile, or on the negative side, they were jerks. You know, something that marked their life. And we have that in mind, the theme. And John had themes about Jesus' life. He talked about Jesus being the light. He talked about him being the Word, the Word incarnate. He talked about him being centered on and even the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll see the word truth 
not only woven throughout the gospel, but in particular in the upper room. So you'll see these themes. I'm the bread of life, John chapter 6. And they're woven throughout his gospel. So you've got that in mind. But you also have these anecdotal stories. These stories that are more intimate and detailed in nature than the other gospels do. For example, he does that in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and then John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, and then John chapter 9 with the man born blind. And then, of course, the apostles in the upper room. John goes into great detail about. So you have these bigger portraits or pictures of Jesus, these anecdotal stories that reflect his relationship with Jesus. And again, that's what we do with people close to us that have died. We tell stories about them, stories that stick out in our minds. So that's what John's doing here. He weaves this in. He writes it toward the end of his own life, and he writes it right before Jesus dies. So it has this power and significance that hopefully during this season of Lent might move you in a different way, might change you, might cause you to seek that more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus and his Father. So now having that in mind, we're going to talk about what we read in John chapter 13. And the first thing I want to focus on in that first section is John, as he introduces this upper room time, he starts off by saying, Jesus knew. Having come to this time and all that the Father had done, Jesus knew. What did Jesus know? I mean, that's a significant line. John is telling us what Jesus knew, what he's about to impart. He doesn't say, you know, at this particular point in time when Jesus knows he's facing his death, he wondered. Or he hoped. You know, like he hoped it was all going to work out in the end. doesn't say that. He said he knew. That Jesus knew what the Father's will was knew what was coming because he had that intimate relationship and the Father revealed it to him. He referred to it several times before he was coming to die. He referred to it several times before that he was going to rise again. And he knew that relationship with the Father, that intimacy, that love relationship. You know, think back in your life at times that you're about to face a trial or a test. In fact, let's go back a ways even more for some of us back in school. I remember there were tests I walked in for. I knew. You know, I'm walking in for this test, and I know I'm going to get 100%, because I know the material so well, and I, know I, and, you know, I have this mindset, I'm going to nail it, I'm going to get 100 on this test. And there were other times I walked in saying, I hope. I pass it. That's the difference. Or if you play an instrument, a musical instrument, and you walk in knowing you're going to nail this at the recital, or you hope you can pull it off and fake it. Or you're playing a sport, the game plan. Have you really prepared for this event? I mean, we can give example after example. Do we know... What 
what John tells us, what comes across when Jesus teaches and shares, and as he faces his death, he knew. There was no question in his mind, he knew. What did Jesus know? First of all, he knew the Father. He was so comfortable in his relationship with his Father. It wasn't one of fear, it wasn't one of questioning. It was this intimacy and love. He knew everything about the Father, and the Father knew everything about Him. This intimacy, this bond with the Holy Spirit, this love. So much so that He would only do and say what the Father bid Him to do. Secondly, He had confidence and trust in the Father. You know, we sometimes, because we don't know, or we don't feel we know, or have the confidence that we say, God, are you really there? Or I really wonder whether you love me. We say things like that because we don't know. And God wants us to know. God wants us to live with that confidence, that assurance of the depth of His love and what His will is for us. To learn what it truly means to rest in Him, to walk with Him, to know. You know, children thrive. We're told children thrive in an atmosphere of security. In fact, it's considered one of the necessities as a child is growing. They need security. And Jesus, as the Son, knew that security absolutely with His Father. Children thrive in an atmosphere where there's absolute security in the marriage. Children thrive in a household where there's absolute security and assurance of the parents' love, even when there's discipline. God means for us to have that kind of confidence, the same confidence Jesus had as He was facing His suffering and death, as He was facing persecution and rejection. To have that kind of security, that confidence. That this is not guesswork. This is not, gee, I hope so. This is absolute confidence in His love. No matter what is coming. Thirdly, He knew where He was coming from and He knew where He was going. John also tells us that. He knew where He came from. He came from the Father's side. He came from the Father's presence. He came from the Father's love. That's why He came. You know, I'm convinced it's why atheists don't believe in an afterlife. You know why? They don't know where they've come from in the first place. See, if you believe that God has created you intentionally, purposefully, because He loves you, then you can believe that there is an afterlife, that there's a heaven, that we can go and be in His presence for all eternity. There's that possibility because we know where we come from. If you know where you come from, if you know why you're here, if you know why you've been created in the first place, to live in relationship with Him and honor Him, then you can have that confidence of knowing where you're going through Jesus Christ. That assurance that God wants us to have. This is what Jesus knew. The second thing we see in this passage is what he does next. After this knowing, after we're told he knows, 
He girds himself with a towel, gets some water, and washes the apostles' feet. You know, when you have that kind of confidence in God, when you have that kind of assurance and security in your life, there is nothing below you. You know, it's interesting in the worldly mindset, when you're at the top, you think there are others below you. But Jesus models as the Lord, there is nothing below him. He's willing to take the lowliest job, the lowliest job of washing feet. You know, I can't stand what I hear now and then when people are looking for jobs. You're overqualified. You know, if I really want to wash dishes or wait tables, I'm not overqualified. I can do that. I do it at home. I can do that. What is this mindset about overqualified? Jesus, as teacher and Lord, was not overqualified to wash feet. He humbled himself. He was willing to take on upon himself the lowest of, of servants. That's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself in order to be born in the first place. Born in a manger. Born in a poor, poor family. He emptied himself and humbled himself. When he walked amongst the apostles, and they would mess up, he was patient and loving with them because he wasn't condescending, he wasn't lowering himself, he was loving them. He was willing to do the lowest of servanthood and servant's task because he was confident in the Father's love. He was willing to rest in the Father and do whatever God called him to do. See, there's no arrogance there. There's no pride there. And that's why Jesus was willing to lower himself and take this on. You know, humility, the word humility comes from the word humus, which is dirt. And we were created out of dirt. And we say on Ash Wednesday, you are from dust and to dust you shall return. When we remember that, we remember what humility is about, that we're willing to do whatever Jesus did. And Jesus was willing to wash feet and he was willing to lay down his life. That's why Peter could not comprehend it. He said, you're not washing my feet. Because Peter knew in his day teachers, and especially if this is the Messiah's Lord, he can't wash my feet. He can't lower himself to that level. So Jesus says, you misunderstand. You don't really get it, do you? This is sacrificial love. This is the depth of love that God has for us. There is nothing below you. If you remember where you've come from, the confidence in the Father's love, if you remember where you've come from, that you're made from the earth, there is nothing below you. You know, I love the illustration of the stock of wheat. The stock of wheat that has the most grain is the one that bows the lowest. 
that when we are so filled with the Spirit and bearing His fruit, that's the ones that are willing to serve and do anything to bow the lowest. And that's what Jesus modeled. Confident in the Father's love. Knowing who He was and where He was going. Then, toward the end of this object lesson, Jesus basically says to them, not only do I want you to know these things, but if you know these things, blessed when you do them. Blessed when you do them. You are blessed in your doing of them. See, this is not just theory. If this was just theory, if we just have this attitude, this mindset, but we don't really have to get involved and, in, and invest ourselves, and if you will, humble ourselves and serve, then we really don't understand what God has in store for us and for others through us. The blessing. You are blessed when you do them. You know, what if Jesus had said to the Father, you know, can't I just stay up in heaven with you? I mean, do I really have to go down there and be born like that and like live with that family and then hang around with those apostles who never get it? And then I have to go through this persecution and this ridicule and then you want me to die on a cross? What if I just say... Father, I love you, and I love them, and let's just stay where we are. Wouldn't that be easier? That's how a lot of people live their Christian life. In the ivory tower. In their minds. Without really giving of themselves. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus gave of himself. It wasn't just a mindset. It wasn't just an attitude. It was a life. And it was a life of sacrificial giving, sacrificial love. It's a life. That's what God wants us to understand. It's in the doing. You know, Jesus clearly rested in his Father's love. He lived in his Father's love. But sometimes we confuse resting in the Father's love with resting on your laurels. And it's not the same thing. Resting in the Father's love means we're moved to sacrificial love of others. That we are blessed to be a blessing. And we're willing to serve and give of ourselves. You know, there's one person mentioned in this section of Scripture that you have before you from John 13 that we really haven't talked about yet. And that's Judas. You know what's interesting about Judas? What's interesting about Judas is he experienced almost everything John experienced. He experienced the teaching. He experienced the miracles. He experienced Jesus' love and he even, even experienced the washing of his feet. 
Judas experienced everything. Unfortunately, he would miss out on the rest of Jesus' teaching that you're going to get because he left. If you get toward the end of this particular gospel, in verse 30, not quite at the end, but almost at the end. Verse 30, it says that Judas went out and it was night. Now the Passover meal or the fellowship meal takes place right as the sun's going down. But John makes it a point to say, and it was night. There's that theme of light and darkness. John's saying more than just what time it was. He didn't have to say that. He's saying Judas chose the darkness. That's what he's saying. It's the same choice that all of us have. We have the same choice. We can be like John and experience that belovedness. Or we can be like Judas, choose the darkness. See, that's the choice that he gives us. That we can choose to walk away and even betray what we've been given. Reject the love. That's the option, the opportunity that we have. And Judas chose it. You know, it's interesting, there's a, there's a verse early in John's Gospel, in fact, the first chapter, that says the light has come into the world and the darkness, if you look at the New Revised Standard Version in your pew or on your bulletin, it says the darkness has not overcome it. But really, more behind the Greek is reflected in the NIV and actually the King James. It says the darkness has not comprehended it. It has not understood it. In other words, when you choose to live apart from God and apart from His will and not live in the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you choose darkness and you will not understand the life that God calls you to. Because you're not willing to live in the light. That's what He calls you to. That's why it says the darkness not only has not overcome it, and Jesus rises again, but the darkness doesn't even understand it. Can't comprehend it. This is not about a high IQ, by the way. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not genius mentality that you have to figure out. Because the reality is, as we talked about before, a child can comprehend security. A child can comprehend who Jesus is, suffer the children to me. It's not about a high intelligence or high IQ. It's a knowing that is an intimacy. It's a knowledge that comes to our hearts, to our souls, and transforms our minds so that we seek to live in the light. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's what Jesus is trying to impart before he dies. It's not theory. It's not just something we think about but never apply. It is theory that's translated into life, that Jesus lives and he dies and he rises again so that we might know this everlasting and eternal life and a transformed life now. That's his desire for us. 
to leave the darkness behind. The darkness of truly not knowing Him. The darkness of walking apart from Him. The darkness of not living in His love. He wants you to live and walk in the light. And to understand what it means to be blessed. So that's what he goes on to teach about during this upper room time. So I invite you for the rest of Lent to spend time in the upper room and to grow in that intimacy, that knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and to learn more and more what it means to live for Him. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, we thank, we thank you so much that you've sent your son, Jesus. Not so that we become people who speculate. Not so that we live in theory. But as the word became flesh, so we would understand who Jesus is for our lives. That Jesus came to model how life is to be lived. He came to die on a cross so that we might know that our sins are forgiven, that we have a Savior. And He rose again that we might know we have a Lord who has power over sin and death in our lives. That we have the opportunity to move from darkness to light, to walk in the light, to live in the light and thereby live in your love. Lord, I pray this day, this Lent would be a season that we set aside. Not just as a good idea, but as a time we grow in that depth and intimacy, that knowledge and love of you, and that our lives would be transformed so that we learn what it means to live more and more for you in your sacrificial love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.